You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it, look for the weird stuff, and hope you enjoy it, too. So, how are you doing, Em? Great. You know, nothing's really changed in the last five minutes, so... Well, that's good, I guess. I mean, if that's the goal, then that's good. <laughs> well, you know, we're doing what we like. So, yeah, it's... a. Uh, beautiful day out here and it's it's fun i like recording outside actually it's it's uh a little bit more peaceful than inside the house where i've got a million people running around yeah we can just keep the dogs and the birds down we might be all right yeah yeah well the birds have not been happy with us being out here i know that they they're just like 10 feet away from our feeders and they just they're in the bushes letting me know that i am disrupting their morning schedule so you're the one but, who put oh, well. bird feeders out there. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> well, I love them. So follow me for bird pics on Facebook. <laughs> Anyhow, but uh, yeah, so we're in First Kings. We just got into the first few verses of the first chapter uh, because we were talking about how the writer is just so brilliant. He sets us up with this great picture of this aging David We've got all this information just within the space of a few words. We've got these similarities between David's courts and Saul's courts. And uh, just like uh, Saul's servants went to go find Saul, a young man, to help with the uh, evil spirit that was uh, tormenting him, David's servants now... um, now they they look for a young woman, and we even have the same words in the Hebrew. And again, this is why the ESV drives me crazy, because they're not consistent with their translations. And that's one of the reasons why I do appreciate Robert Alter's translation. The Net Bible is another good source if you want to keep that consistency, where the same English word is used to translate the Hebrew word almost every time, unless it's just blatantly obvious that context demands a different English word. And so it's easier to see those connections if you're reading the English. So um, anyhow, that's just know what you're looking at, that translations, none of them are perfect. Okay. They're just not. So use a lot of different translations, read it in different sources and different phrasings, and you're going to get so much more uh, out of the story. So we're going to pick up in verse four. It says, the young woman was very beautiful, and she was the service to the king and attended him, but the king knew her not. Now, this word beautiful here is not tov, not like we typically expect it to be. It's actually yaffa, which is the word used for Joseph in Pharaoh's courts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we have a connection back to to Genesis right here because we don't really see that word used of women all that often. It tends to be tove that they're they're beautiful they're good they're good excuse me <laughs> and um, 
the writer is very specific. Abishag, she attended to David, but he knew her not. And you're going to see um, that this this theme of knowing and not knowing is going to run through the first part of the story where David is just not aware of what's going on around him. And I'm not talking about like he's not aware there's a woman in his bed. He's just not aware of the condition of the kingdom at this point. And uh, we also know that to know, uh, for a man and woman to know each other in the biblical parlance is a euphemism for sex. And so uh, the writer is also telling us that he didn't have sex with her. Now, this is significant for for a couple of reasons. Um, Immediately right now within this verse, um, it's significant because we know David's proclivities. We know that David is not known for his mastery of his sexual urges. Uh, we would almost expect him to take advantage of a woman in this situation because of what we've seen from him before, Mm -hmm. specifically with Bathsheba. Uh, It's also important and significant because kings were expected to just be these very virile sexual powerhouses. And I I know that's like a really weird thing to, to think of because, but in ancient cultures, their, their sexual powers was actually seen as uh, having a direct correlation to their ability to reign, which really makes sense. Well, if I mean, you think about... Go ahead. Finish what your, your thought was. I'm gonna... say, it, it makes sense when you think of the ceremonial um, religious uh, marriages that happened where the, the, the sons of God, the Elohim, would inhabit the king's body to produce the next heir. Well... So... Yeah, and I was also thinking about like these like highly subsistence agrarian societies where the state of the land is tied to the state of the king. And if the king's infertile, then the land is doomed to be infertile. So there's there's a lot of a lot of stuff tied into uh how various religions and monarchies of ancient worlds viewed uh sex and the state of the nation. Exactly. And I think one of the things that we we forget about uh, very often is the that that fertility within the kingdom, not only did it reflect the king's power, it, 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 it reflected the God's favor on that king. And so the king couldn't image the God that he was supposed to represent very well unless he was able to encompass this aspect of the God's ability to give life or sustain life. And so we need to keep that in mind. This is a whole different way of thinking. It's it's not the way we think about these things. And we need to be very careful not to impose our ideologies on uh, these ancient cultures. So the idea that a king was incapable of uh, knowing this woman is really telling the reader uh, at that time, hey, there's an issue here with his ability to rule. It, it's not just that he, he's an old man. He, he, he's incapable of ruling at this point. Now, of course, the rabbis don't like this. They have a much better, and by much better, I mean much more religious idea of why this is important. Much more sanitized idea. 
Yeah, yeah. And basically they say that this is, uh, you know, David has matured so much by this point that he has all of his sexual urges completely under control. And this is why he does not take advantage of the situation. He's demonstrating a level of self-control that he discovered after his repentance of what he did to Bathsheba. I don't think so. I don't think that's what the writer's trying to present to us. Uh, I, I think the writer is trying to not, he's not trying to tell us David has control of his urges. I think he's trying to tell us that at this point, David is so diminished physically that he has no urges. And so this, um, this is further uh, confirmed to me by the idea that we have David, um, he he just he's not aware he's not aware of what's happening in his kingdom and so we see that it, there's this this progression from what's immediately around him and how it flows out into everything he's supposed to be taking care of and so verse 5 it says now uh, adoniah was eridoniah was the son of hegith exalted himself saying i will be king and he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him now adonia was uh david's fourth son amnon uh was his first and obviously he's not around because uh absalom killed him Kiliab, who uh, has disappeared from the story, we only find him mentioned in a couple of lists of David's sons. His name shows up, and so he's either dead or he has removed himself from um, the the running for king. Mm -hmm. uh, there could have been an illness. He could have been disfigured. He could. Uh, there, there's a number of reasons that we just weren't important enough to the story for the writer to include it. It's basically what it boils down to. Now, of course. The rabbis don't like that, so they claim that Kiliab was so devoted to Torah study, and he was so pure that he's one of four men who, who supposedly never sinned in their lifetime. And so he had no political aspirations, and he just decided, no, I don't want to be king. Uh, it's interesting that David's father, Jesse, is one of the other four men who supposedly never sinned. Now, um, Absalom was killed by Joab, of course. And so Adonia is number four, an heir apparent, because he's the next in line. And I just made a statement that is so full of cultural bias, most people don't even realize it. Okay. Why is he heir apparent? And that's how kingdoms run as far as most of the history we've studied or know about, that the next oldest son would be the one to inherit. But there is no stated methodology of succession within Israel. Right. There's nothing established at this point. And so this is how we fall into error and in trying to understand the biblical text. We, we don't realize that we're even putting our bias on there because we think, well, this is just how it's done. And so because— uh, I had to catch myself when I was was thinking of that. Um, you know, in the Bible, so often that that oldest son, youngest son order is inverted anyway. We know that. Anybody who's read Genesis knows that. The oldest son is not any more special than the younger son. Um, also, you know, uh, Adonia is not the, the son of a favorite wife. Uh, he's not a noted warrior. 
There's nothing to recommend him to this position. But he chooses, despite that, to to say, I'm going to exalt myself. And, you know, which is a direct break from how the kings were chosen in the past in Israel. I mean, we've only had two so far. Um, Saul and David, they didn't exalt themselves. God chose them and God raised them to this position. Mm-hmm. And matter of fact, the last time we had a son who exalted himself based on his father's position, the last two times, things didn't go so well because we had Eli's son. They mm-hmm. open up first Samuel and they think that they can get by with anything because their daddy's high priest and basically the, the, the de facto ruler of Israel at that point in time. But then we also, if we look a little further back in Judges 9, we have Gideon's son, Abimelech, and this resulted in the wholesale massacre of Gideon's 70 other sons and the destruction of several cities. So we, we already should be expecting bad things to happen because the, the pattern that's being set here has never yielded good results within Scripture at all. So... That's our first two reasons to um, to be kind of suspicious of Adonia. Uh, he's not chosen by a prophet, and he's exalted himself. So, verse six: his father at many at his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, "Why have you done thus and so?" He was also very handsome, and he was born next after Absalom. Okay, the the writer's up in the ante here. We're seeing so many things to to be concerned about. Um, We're told, first off, that his dad never reprimands him for anything. David just does not set boundaries with this child. This is a kid who is just doing whatever he pleases. Mm -hmm. And we've already seen this does not work. Uh, This is why Amnon was such an issue. David never never did anything to correct or restrain Amnon. And so um, we know how that ended. This ends up with Absalom uh, killing Amnon and Israel, all of Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, being thrown into civil war. So um, they, uh, rabbis were also quick to, to note that this does um, tie back to Eli and his son because Eli also failed to reprimand his sons. And when he did finally have to step up and say something because a prophet came and said, you need to deal with this, mm-hmm. he gave him a slap on the wrist. We, you know, we talked about that. Um, you know, so the, the distinction that the rabbis try to draw here is that Eli failed to stop his sons from sinning. And mm-hmm. we know that what they were doing was definitely sin. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, They say David didn't sin because Adonia wasn't doing anything sinful. He was just being foolish and arrogant. Um, But that's our third reason to be suspicious of Adonia. So he's connected to Amnon. And then we're told that he's handsome. He was born after Absalom. So there's our fourth reason, connecting us back to Absalom, because we know that Absalom he got arrogant. He was vain. He he believed that because he was the people's favorite and the people did seem to like him, that he had every right to step up and would be accepted if he stepped up. And the other thing we got to remember, too, Absalom believed that his judgment, his sense of morality was better than his father's, at least in the beginning. 
And that led to him becoming so convinced of his greatness that he does even more terrible things than David did. So mm-hmm. now we, we've got kind of this, this sense of this is not going to be good, which is the right thing to be thinking. And this, it's this kind of overlap, too, uh, that between judges and through Abimelech and Samuel through Eli and his sons and Absalom and Amnon that causes scholars to think that judges, Samuel and Kings were all one book. So there's a really good example of how we pull all these stories together and we see the writer using the same words. We see the writer using uh, this kind of foreshadowing by picking up on these themes within characters as he's referenced before to, to make to make a picture that's very complete and very full in a very tight amount of space. So, um, but the, the thing is, without, without these stories, then these statements about Adonia really seem to be kind of superfluous. Why mm. do we care that he's beautiful? Why do we care that he was born after Absalom? Why do we care that David never reprimanded him? It, it really has no bearing on our, our narrative here unless we can look back and go, oh, this is why this is so bothersome. This is why this is a problematic behavior or a trait within this person. You have to have that context from the whole of the story to get there. And it's why we have to be so careful about lifting a. You're going to be okay there? Okay. Have to be careful about what? (laughs) How you inhale, evidently. But why we have to be so careful about disconnecting stories from the overall context of the book that they're found in. Mm -hmm. So, because it will, it will lead you astray. Verse seven. He conferred with Joab, son of Zuriah, and with Abathar, the priest, and they followed Adonia and helped him. So Joab, we know him. He is David's top guy. He has been David's right-hand man from the beginning, he, and he is David's nephew, the son of David's sister. And, of course, Joab's had some rocky moments here lately because— First of all, he kills Abner when he wasn't supposed to. Mm. Then when David tells him, don't kill Absalom, Joab kills Absalom. And then when David's grieving Absalom, Joab kind of kicks David in the seat of the pants and says, you got to start acting like a king. Mm -hmm. And actually, David removed him from the position of lead general and said, nope, I don't want you. I want Abner's former, former general. And Abner kills that guy. Joab kills that guy. Sorry. And and so, um, you know, Joab has kind of shown that he is willing to um, do his own thing. He he's a wild card. I know. I think he's a wild card in the right direction. I think he's always on David's side, but on David's side as the king, not David the man. And so he thinks, kind of like Absalom did, that his judgment is better than David's, and this is going to play into some serious events in Joab's life. Um, so Abathar, uh, he's the priest at this point. Now, Abathar joined David, uh, back in first Samuel 22. And this is when David had fled from Saul. You know, Jonathan had warned him, David flees from Saul. Um, 
David goes to Nob, where the priest and the Ark of the Covenant are, and he eats the showbread, and he gets Goliath's sword. And then Saul finds out that the priest had helped David, and um, he slaughters all of the priests with the exceptions of Abathar. And Abathar goes to David and said, basically, you got my family killed. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, these are high-ranking officials among David's men from before he ever ascended to um ascended to the throne. And as far as men that Adonia would want on his side, then these are it. Mm-hmm. This is absolutely, you know, if you've got dad's top general and you've got dad's high priest, then um, it's going to look like dad has approved this move. But if you dig a little deeper and, and you you recognize their full stories, you begin to see why they're problematic. You know, Joab, for all the reasons I listed, but Abathar, you know, David had him not because David was, you know, drawn to him or Abathar was appointed to David or it was out of a sense of obligation. Their their relationship was very problematic from the very beginning. But the other problem with Abathar, he's from the house of Eli. He, he's uh, from that cursed house because God said, hey, look, your your guys are going to die young. They're going to just hope and pray they can do a little bit around the temple, not serve as high priests so they can get a little food to eat. Uh, they're going to starve out. And so you're, you're not going to be my lead guys anymore. You, we, they're going to be replaced. So. If you know all that and you bring all of that into reading this, then the verse eight becomes very striking. It says, but Zadok, the priest, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, all these vowels together, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonia. So Zadok is the priest who's going to be slated to take Abathar's place. We're going to learn that later. But Aniah, the head of David's personal guards, the Kerithites and the Cherethites, the, the ones that take care of the king personally, remember they were hired out, he, he's not invited. So this is a guy who worked very closely with David in a military sense, um, but not going out. It was the staying in and staying by David's side. Nathan, the prophet, I, I don't think I have to elaborate on him very much. He's been a part of the royal courts. He knows the ins and the outs, the workings. He's David's friend. He's not just David's prophet. He, he, from previous conversations, they seem to be very comfortable talking to each other. Now, the ones that make me the most curious are the mighty men, given the fact that Joab is among Adonai's guests. Because remember back after Absalom died, when David's grieving, one of the threats that Joab made is, if you don't shape it up, I'm going to take your army away from you. We're, I'm going to lead them away from you and lead a revolt, basically, is what he said. I'm paraphrasing there, so you're not going to find those words exactly. But Joab makes this threat that says, I'm the one they look to. So why aren't David's mighty men there? Um, I think possibly the reason is, is when David removed Joab as general, remember he he took Absalom's former general and he replaced um, Joab with Amasa. And then when Amasa didn't do exactly what David wanted, David then promoted Abishai, Joab's brother. And um, I, I really think that this is showing that David's replacement of Joab in those two instances is starting to have his desired effect. 
He's, it's starting to convey to the mighty man, if you want to be with David, you can't be on Joab's side. I think that's what we're seeing here. Um, I think the idea for a long time had been if you're loyal to Joab, then you're automatically loyal to, loyal to David, that there, mm. it was synonymous. And so there might the mighty men uh, might not have been included because that their their loyalty to Joab was starting to sway. Now, Shimmy, there's some debate on which Shimmy this is. Um, there's the first possibility is Shimmy, the son of Gera. This is the guy who came out and cursed David. And then David later pardoned him. And uh, he was part of David's royal entourage back into Jerusalem mm -hmm. after Absalom had been displaced. The second option is it's Shimei, David's brother, who's the father of Jonathan, one of David's mighty men. Now, the argument for Shimei, son of Gera, has some weight because Shimei, the son of Gera, will play a role in the next few chapters. So I tend to lean that direction because we don't have Shimei, the father of Jonathan, mentioned in the next, well, for quite a while. Um, as a matter of fact, he's really only mentioned in list of the mighty men. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a third option is Shimei, son of Elah, who is uh, later named as one of Solomon's officials. Again, he's not brought up in this narrative. So I'm going to lean again towards Shimei, son of Gera, which seems like a weird person to include uh, as part of David's inner circle. Ray, uh, no one has a theory about who this guy is. This is the only time we find his name. So I'm not going to. Um, not going to offer any speculation, but it does seem that the people on this list were uh, part of David's inner circle. They're people who are serving alongside of David. They know him intimately. They tend to be very, um, very, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're very loyal to David and not necessarily just court officials functioning. Uh, on the fringes of the royal court. Now, um, verse nine says Adoniah was Adonia. I got like five different ways to pronounce his, uh, his name based on who's teaching. I like Adonia, but I just forget how to say it. It says sacrifice sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers and the king's sons and all the royal officials to Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Beniah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. So in Rogel, that's where Jonathan and Amaza waited uh, with, not Jonathan, David's friend, but uh, Jonathan, the son of Abathar, waited to act as messengers on behalf of their fathers when David was running from Absalom, when Absalom invaded uh, Jerusalem. And it's a, it's a spring that's located not too far from Jerusalem, which is important. Uh, we're going to see why in a few verses. Rogel actually means foot, and it's believed to uh, mean that this is a place where gar garments were tread as part of a stomping out and the washing process. Um, now, Zoheleth, or the serpent stone, is a little bit more difficult to try to parse because there's not a lot of information. Um, there's just not many writings about it and so i did some research and basically um there's a lot of conflicting information about this serpent stone and what it possibly could be it could mean um but there has to be something significant about it 
because it, it's brought up here. Now, Rashi says that's a stone where young men would test their strength and they would try to make it crawl like a serpent. So this is where the idea comes from. Uh, Alter notes that some scholars believe it's a site where Canaanites worshipped a serpent god. A god, And so if that's the case, then Adonia is really doing some crazy stuff out there because he's sacrificing to a Canaanite god, which is a good possibility given that the Ark is now in Jerusalem. It's not um, out in Enrogel. And it kind of sets up a, again, if this is what it means, it would set up a major theme within the book. Because one of the major themes within the book is unauthorized worship in high places versus proper worship within Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a major, major issue. And it's it's interesting to me that when David and Saul, when David's anointed, there's no mention of sacrifice. When Saul's anointed, there is. But when David is, um, nothing. So... Um, is it does it have anything to do with like the brass serpent or the bronze serpent or whatever it was the that Moses made? Was it possibly the place where it rested or I did not find any reference to that. Uh I didn't think to specifically try to look for it that way. Because um but I, I I know that there is some passage about when it was finally isn't there some passage about like it was finally destroyed because there were people who were offering sacrifices to it and worshiping it as though it were some kind of idol. Absolutely. Uh, and so I was, I was kind of curious if there was anything like that. Yeah, I I didn't see anything on that. Um, I'll try looking for it that way this week and see what I can come up with because occasionally you know that's. You can't just always put in a biblical phrase and expect to find all the information. You kind of have to look through different, um, look for it in different ways. And yeah, and you usually have to get past the first first couple pages of Google to get past the uh, pop commentary. And okay, so first of all, use Google Scholar. That's right. going to get you to the good papers. Sure. Second, if you do just do a a general Google search, yeah, just skip down to page like six. Don't even mess with the first few pages. I mean, because um, you're going to get the same sources. Honestly, there's some major Christian outlets who have the first five pages of Google tied up. Right. And, um, you know, and they aren't always the best. And what's really funny is those are the ones who are often the most vocal about claiming their stuff is uh, suppressed. Yeah. And it's like, no, I don't know. And, uh, I'm not going to get too far off on that, but if I really don't feel like I can trust the rest of your information, if you're the first thing that comes up on Google when you tell me you're being uh, censored. Anyway, yeah. that's yeah. Well, that's for free. We'll move on. <laughs> well, and a lot of times, if you're looking for something about the Old Testament and you want a Jewish perspective, just put in your key term and then a, a comma, Judaism. Mm-hmm. And, and so that'll get you to something other than the pop Christian sources. Um and also, you know, Jewish uh, encyclopedia is a good place to jump off. Mm-hmm. Um, virtual Jewish library, another good place to, uh, to jump off onto. Kabad.org, that's another good mm-hmm. source. Yeah, you for... kind of go watch them just a little bit, but yeah. I know, I know you said they get a little Kabbalistic at times, but you can at least see some of the commentaries. E- exactly, exactly. So, you know, know your sources, know what you're looking at. Um, but um, where are we? 
<laughs> but so basically we've been set up with all this information that says this is not going to work out very well for Adonia. Uh, things are not going to work in his favor. And we have, again, in the next passages coming up, another list of, of who isn't at the feast. There's some differences. Uh, all the brothers are there, So, or who is at the feast and who isn't. Uh, all the brothers are there, most likely, so that they could surrender any legal right to any kind of claim they had to the throne and to pledge their loyalty to their brother as king. Uh, there is the royal officiants to make political promises, to pledge their loyalty. And this time Solomon is, um, he's included as someone who's not invited, specifically not invited. And this is very telling. Now, what it's telling of kind of depends on your perspective. Because either Adonia doesn't think Solomon is qualified to be king, so therefore he doesn't need Solomon's pledge of loyalty, mm. or he thinks Solomon is his only real rival and doesn't want him there to interfere with his claim. And that's going to be an interesting puzzle that we're going to have to riddle out here is how much of a claim does Solomon actually have to the throne? Right. And even though we don't see the anointing here until close to the end of chapter one, you really have the question of when was the decision made or when, you know, that's, that's really the question I have. And did he know? Oh, okay. Well, but then, but then did he know that, and and it's probably something obvious that I've overlooked, but uh, the answer, but you know, did he know that Solomon had the claim and he was trying to like beat him to the punch, trying to pull a, uh, like an Absalom? Uh, no, well, not an Absalom. I was thinking of like uh, Jacob, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, and there is that idea. You know, here we're we're going back to brothers feasting and giving up birthrights. Mm-hmm. So we do have a connection. It's kind of a tenuous one, but at the same time, it's still there. And I think that sometimes those tenuous connections aren't so that you you overlay them too much, but you kind of get that sense that 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 nuance kind of playing in the back of your head while you read through the accounts. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to pick up in verse 11. It says, then David, sorry, then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard that Adonia, the son of Haggith, has become the king and David, our Lord, does not know it. So again, that not knowing it. Uh, Nathan sees the problem and he's the one who's aware of what's going on, not David. Mm -hmm. And his first stop, this is what I find just interesting, is not with David. He doesn't go to the king and say, hey, there's an issue. He goes to Bathsheba. Uh, You know, he could have gone to any one of the other men in those list of men who weren't included and go, guys, we got a problem. We need to address this. No, he bypasses all of them. And he goes to to a woman because you really would expect him to go to some kind of political powerhouse or great warrior. I mean, that makes sense. And so he he when he bypasses them and goes to a woman and not just any woman, a woman who has been wronged by David on so many levels and says, we've got to fix this. It it, it should make you pause and wonder what's going on here. And again, those are those questions you were asking. When was it that it became um, known that Solomon is supposed to be the heir, Mm. but we're going to come back to that. So I I did not read ahead this week in all honesty. (laughs) Um, I just, I, I'm reading ahead a few sentences before you, so I'm kind of following and I'm like, oh, well there, 
uh, is some evidence here that it was decided a while back. Um, There's, yeah, there so, is some. So I'll admit my own mistakes here. I should have been paying closer attention before we pressed record. <laughs> well, the thing is, I have actually had a lot of teachers, like in seminary, I had teachers who, one in particular, who made the statement that Solomon was never supposed to be king and that he was only put on the throne through some political maneuvering and subterfuge by Nathan and Bathsheba. And so, uh, you know, it's not that obvious if we've got people who study the Bible their whole life making statements like that. So, um, but, and, um, the, I, the, go ahead. Well, what's funny is a lot of people who make statements like that are often are determinists, but you know, go ahead. <laughs> right. So. so, uh, so Nathan continues, Nathan Havivi, Nivivi, uh, came and talk. Um, the prophet says, now, therefore, come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son, Solomon. So Nathan believes that Solomon and Bathsheba are in danger. And it's very likely because at this point in time, when one son would ascend to a throne, often, and not just in Israel, but in many cultures at this time, the next move is you kill off everybody else who's got a claim to the throne. You kill off all your brothers, any nephews, cousins, uncles, get them out of there so that you've got it locked down. So the idea that Solomon might be under some kind of threat of death from his brother, not far-fetched at all. And uh, now, even what, what I find interesting is even Bathsheba is in danger. And this is no reason really for for Nathan to seek her out specifically still because women really didn't have a lot of control over their circumstance. So the fact that, that he's going to Bathsheba is still very mind-blowing because she's less of somebody who could influence change, at least on the surface, than she's a potential victim. I mean, we've already seen this. So she has been abused prior to this. But Nathan makes her his partner in crime, so to speak, and trying to get Solomon on, on the throne. So verse 13, Nathan's still talking. He says, go, at one, go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Sidonia king? Verse 14, then while you're still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. Now, if this setup feels uh, familiar, it's because we saw the same tactic at play in 1 Samuel 14. The players were different, with the exception of David, but it's the same thing. Joab goes to the wise woman of Tekoa and says, hey, I need you to go to the king, and this is what you're going to tell him, and we're going to do it. Why? Because we're going to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. It has, we've got to get David to respond to his sons correctly. So Joab has done the exact same thing that Nathan's doing here. Mm -hmm. And if you, we're seeing Bathsheba actually cast in that role as the wise woman in this instance. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and another thing is when we read this, we think, oh man, this is a lot of weird subterfuge and and you know a lot of uh, a lot of behind the scenes thing but it, we actually i mean this is still common today when people get ready to go to court they someone says you're going to get on the stand and you're going to we're going to ask you this question and you're going to say this they ask you this question you're going to say this i mean it's 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 still very formal regardless of the relationship that 
David and Bathsheba had. I think there's still probably some formalities going on. Um, we're going to talk about what we'll, level that's at. Gonna, yeah. So it's it's very interesting as things progress. But you know, we we do still see this kind of thing happening today. It's not uncommon at all. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, and and even outside of court, I mean, how many times is there a family situation where one member of the family will go, well, hey you know, you need to know this so that you can say this, or you, you, we do this, we triangulate and psychologists are telling us, don't do this. This is a bad thing to do. But, um, you know, what we're seeing here is kind of actually a reversal of, uh, Joab and the, the wise woman of Tekoa, um, because we have a, a prophet, not a general recruiting the woman. Bathsheba is known to David. She's not a stranger. Uh, no son has died yet. In the wise woman of Tekoa, she goes to David and says, hey, I had two sons. One of them died, and uh, one of them was killed by the other one, and this town wants to put my other son to death. Don't let that happen. But Bathsheba is speaking, speaking preemptively. She's saying, I don't want my son to die. And so a son doesn't need to be returned or restored to a parent after a death. A son needs to be deposed of to prevent death. So mm-hmm. Adonia needs to be taken down a notch to save a life. And if we we look um, forward in the Bible, we're going to find another story that makes use of the same passage quite extensively where another man recruits a woman to speak to a king in order to save life. And this woman, she's got to be wise. She's got to have discretion. She's got to know how to dress herself well and to speak in the face of power and to speak in the face of men who have the direct specific power over her life and death. And also we're going to see that um, these men tell women how to speak to the king. Mm-hmm. They, they think that they've got to give the women the words to speak. And the story I'm talking about is Esther, because there's several points of connection between this first chapter of first Kings and the book of Esther itself. Right. And, you know, we've got two women who are in the royal courts. They're married to the king and who takes them, not by their own will or even by agreement from the family, to take them as a wife. And so these women have to find a way to survive in a situation that was designed to, to take them from their lives. So... Uh, We're going to look at some more points of connection with Esther as we move forward. But verse 15, so Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old and Abishag the Shunammite was attending the king. So once we have Esther and we read this verse, the fact that Bathsheba just simply goes into the bedchamber, there's no announcement, there's no uh, escort in, and she just goes in, and there's her husband with this young woman who's been brought to keep her man warm, and it, it kind of is a really good contrast to um, to Esther's story and the way she approaches Xerxes within his courts, and you know, and I'd be completely remiss if I didn't point out how incredibly awkward this had to be. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, because I, for Bathsheba, she's got to be looking back and going, that's me 20 years ago. That, that's that's where I was. Mm-hmm. I, I was the woman who was brought to the king's bedchamber. And um, you know, that's just really insane when you think about it. Um, I am so glad that we no longer practice these kinds of marriages because I don't share well. But Verse 16, Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king says, what do you desire? Now, 
again, the ESV translators missed something here because if you go back to 1 Samuel 1, when Aksah comes to Caleb, her dad, Caleb says the exact same words, and there's a different translation in the ESV. And you know, when Aksah came to Caleb, she she said he asked her, "What do you want? What 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 do you desire?" And when she asked him, "So I want the land with the springs. We need water mm-hmm. if we're going to survive." Caleb goes, "Not only will I give you this land with the springs, here's some more land with more springs," and he gives her double what she asked for. And so, if you've got that connection. Now you should expect David to respond favorably to Bathsheba. So verse 17, she said to him, my Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord, your God saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. Verse 18. And now behold, Adonia is king. Although you, my Lord, the king, you do not know it. Not knowing. Again, this is the third time we've, we've got this passage brought up and this knowing whether we're talking knowing the young woman in his bed or knowing what his son is doing these are things kings should know he should not be have to have other people telling him what's going on if you remember back in uh first samuel uh, i didn't write the reference down when saul had just uh, defeated the philistines and the people are so hungry this is after he made the vow no one will eat until we've won the war and the people are killing the animals and the blood uh, is still in the animals and the, the priests have to go to the king and say, hey, the men are eating the blood. The king didn't know. We don't like it when the kings don't know. We need a king who understands what's happening and is aware of what people are doing around him so that he can address the situation appropriately. Mm-hmm. No human king's going to be able to do this. So verse 19, we go through the sacrifices, the guest list again, Bathsheba points out Solomon is not among the invited. And in verse 20, she says, and now my king, my Lord, the King, the eyes of all of Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit in the throne of my Lord, the King after him. So she's playing to his ego. You're the one everyone's watching. You're the one that they need to hear from. Nobody else can take your place. So you better step two. Uh, she, she's very careful to su- not to suggest that David broke his oath to her right she's very careful to say hey you didn't know this was going on but it needs to be addressed and so again we see that that uh wise that wisdom uh, coming into play being able to speak appropriately and still be heard while while telling the truth which is something we expect from whether we're talking wise women or we're expecting prophets for whom wisdom is a, a one of the, the finding uh, attributes. Right. So verse 21, otherwise it will come to pass when my Lord, the King sleeps with his fathers, that I and my, my Solomon will be counted offenders. Not a great translation there. Um, there's a couple of different ways to, to read the statement she's just made. And it's based on uh, the word kata, which means sinner or sinful. Uh, it can have the connotation of being criminals, so they could be counted as criminals. Mm-hmm. Um, it could also be read as, yeah, they did offend Adonia, just that their very existence offends Adonia. We got some thunder going on. Uh, but Rashi picks up on another possibility, and Rashi's one of those that you kind of have to play careful with um, because he he could take some crazy uh side trips 
yes, leaps, leaps, yes. Like, but he picks up on another place where this word is used. It's not a word that that we find very often uh, in Hebrew, but in Judges twenty sixteen, uh, we read among all those were eight hundred or seven hundred. Can't read the writing. Several hundred men who were left-handed, every one of them could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. The the word there for miss is kata. So she, it's possible that Bathsheba is saying we would be missing. Uh, we would disappear. And, you know, this is a subtle hint. It could be a subtle hint at the danger that was uh, her and Solomon were facing if Adonia was allowed to take control of the kingdom. Uh, and so, again, we see that that way in which the Hebrew, because you do have words that mean two different things, how the writers sometimes will use a word, one word to encompass both ideas, that uh, their, their presence, their existence could be offensive, that they shouldn't exist. She shouldn't be one of David's wives because she had been Uriah's wife, that, that Solomon's not a legitimate son because the, the marriage between David and Bathsheba was questionable. And so that makes them offensive or criminal. But then there's a possibility they could end up missing because Adonia wished to remove them from his presence and remove them as threats. Verse 20, 22, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in and they told the king, here's Nathan the prophet. And he came in before the king and he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Now notice Nathan the prophet has to be announced. Bathsheba, the wife, can just enter. Mm -hmm. So you, the writer kind of gives you that tip off. There's still some kind of relationship between David and Bathsheba that is functional on some level. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think we expect that. I, I think that we've been, you know, we didn't immense words when we talked about their story that this was an absolute assault against her. She was the victim of a crime by David on a couple of different counts. But somehow in the middle of that, she has managed to create a place where she can not only survive, but she can thrive. She still has the king's ear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this woman ha has done something incredible. She's taken an impossible situation and she is using every weapon in her arsenal to make sure her son, her Solomon, is actually going to be protected and do well, right. despite all the odds. Right. It, well, and what, what's interesting is um, because of this, because of the, it seems like she and David are on pretty good terms now, this is often used to uh, try to downplay what happened between her and David when they first met. And it, I'm, I don't know how you get around that. I mean, the Bible itself is pretty clear that Regardless of whatever vocabulary you want to frame it in, an affair, rape, uh, abuse, adultery, anything like whatever vocabulary you want to frame it in is wrong. And the Bible's very clear that what he did was wrong. And so that's why I get very frustrated. Like, yes, it's clear that, that the relationship has changed since those days, but that does not mean that everyone was just okay with what happened. Uh, and that it was in any way a good thing. I'm, I, this is one of those things where you, where you look at it and you're like, well, God redeemed the situation and, exactly. and made good things come from it, but we can't say that it was something that was supposed to happen. 
Well, and as you're talking, I was thinking what's what's really interesting to me is she is evidently um, she has managed to forgive him enough to be able to speak to him in to to be in his presence even. Mm-hmm. And so here she is epitomizing a very Christian virtue of forgiveness. And yet we still want to cast her as some kind of evil seductress. And why? Why why can't we just celebrate the fact that she's actually getting it right? And so, and I'm not saying that everybody who's ever been um, in this situation where there has been some kind of sexual assault, you need to forgive and reestablish a relationship with your abuser. David repented. David repented hardcore. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is, that's a difference. That's not the same thing as an unrepentant, malicious abuser who wants to continue hurting people. Right. So, um, not excusing David at all. And so we need to make that very clear. But then we've got, um, verse 24. And we'll just continue. It says, and David said, my Lord, the king, have you said Adonia shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? And so then we have another retelling of the guest list. And Nathan really plays it up. They're eating and drinking. Uh, long live King Adonia. Um, there's another retelling of who wasn't involved. And verse 27 says, he has this, he has this thing has this thing been brought about by my Lord, the King? Have you not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my Lord, the King? So basically, dude, why didn't you tell me what was going on? You know, we're friends. You you should have let me know what's going, going to happen. Why don't you have this? Why aren't you telling me this? And, um, and we see how smooth Nathan has really become during his time in the courts. I mean, he is, he, he is working it. And, um, you know, he, he isn't like directly confronting David going, you know, Hey dude, you dropped the ball. It's like, we're friends. You should have told, it's like a Godfather scene. Mm. I mean, you know, and David knows the words. He knows that every word, every phrase that he speaks could place him in jeopardy. If he says the wrong thing, David could have him killed, but he also wants to provide the, the correct emotional response or the, 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 he wants to provide the setting and the means for David to have the correct emotional response. Mm-hmm. And so this time he doesn't tell a pretty story about a lamb, which is interesting where his story about the lamb, he actually has the lamb Bathsheba introduce him at this point in time. So instead of introducing his, his message with a story about the lamb, he actually sends the lamb in, in person. Um, but it should also make you really stop and ask a couple of questions, uh, and which we've already kind of discussed. Did David make this um, promise to Bathsheba earlier, or is this something that Nathan and Bathsheba did cook up together? And why is it so important that to Nathan that Solomon become king? Um, and now David obviously is thoroughly convinced that he did make this promise, but there's some some doubt. A lot of commentators think that we're looking at um, some kind of elder abuse where they totally did this gaslighting uh, two-step with David to convince him that he did make a promise, even though he hadn't made a promise. And why should David doubt it? I mean, here's a wife who is so 
uh, familiar and comfortable, just that she just walks into David's bedroom. And then here's the prophet. And he's the one that David uh, has relied on for guidance in the past. So David, surely he should, should feel comfortable in accepting their words for it. But the writer's gone out of his way to tell us over and over again that David didn't know. And so um, I think that what's very clear is the writer of Samuel wants us to wonder. He doesn't want us to feel like there is a clear-cut explanation here. He wants us to kind of have this doubt in our minds because we've got to remember Solomon has really just been a footnote in the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, He's almost the consolation prize for the child that died in the death of David's first son. And suddenly, just out of nowhere, he's thrust right back in the middle of the forefront of our story with and becomes the second most famous king in all of Israel. And so our story is is trying to to get us into the state of confusion and to experience the chaos because we don't have a set succession ritual for Israel yet. That this is a major time of of change and transformation for the entire nation. This has never happened before, that we have a son who, on the basis of his father's identity, rise up and claim leadership and the role of the nation. Mm-hmm. I mean, now, if you aren't already seeing foreshadowing of the New Testament, wake up. I mean, <laughs> this is the idea that a son could claim a throne just on his father's Um, reputation and name, it is crazy. Now, the reason why I said I had an answer for you is because if we go over to Chronicles, we have a much different picture. Solomon's not a footnote. He, He is the son who's supposed to reign. This is very evident in the entire story. Matter of fact, Adonia doesn't even appear. There's no mention of him. Who cares? Other than, you know, list of the king's sons. Uh, there's no intervention with Nathan and Bathsheba. Uh, and we need to remember that Chronicles and Kings were written for two very different purposes. Kings is supposed to be looking at, looking back and going, how did we end up in exile? How did we get to this place where we lost everything that God had promised to give our fathers and grandfathers? Why are we in these dire straits? Where Chronicles is supposed to inspire people to go back and say, we can reclaim everything we lost. We need to fight to, to get back everything that was taken for us. We need to, to persevere in order to become what we once were. And what we once were was Solomon in this grand temple and this place where God's presence resided. And that's our heritage. And we should not lose that while we spend this time in another country. Mm-hmm. And so we have the contradictions because Kings wants you to be aware you can lose the promise at any second. You can lose the blessing at any moment. It's all up to you and how you respond and whether you're honoring God's covenant and the things that he says are required of you or whether you're rejecting it. Chronicle says there's a promise to grab hold of and you need to grab hold of it. So it's not that we're getting two different stories that contradict each other just because people couldn't get it right. It's because the message is different. 
example. So if you turned on, uh, you know, if you look at the, um, the news today, if you've got somebody who is giving you a story on the political impact of a, a military conflict somewhere in the world, they're going to look at the politics. If you were talking to someone who's going to talk about military strategy, they're going to talk about what's happening within the military setup and the movements that are happening. If you want an, an op-ed piece, they're going to write something completely different, a human interest story, something completely different, all describing the same events. But because they're coming at it from different perspectives, they're going to choose to emphasize different things. We don't say these journalists are lying for presenting us these pieces. And so well, we we don't, but <laughs> well, you know, I know if you want to get into okay, well, the, this one's lying, and this one you can't trust, and this one is a good one, then you know we can get into the Fox versus CNN news debate, right? Well, no, I was just I was just, I was making a, a point that there are people on the internet who, because you don't include every nugget of possible outcomes, will assume that you haven't done any research and are preventing presenting false information. Um, Right. Anyway, so, that's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so basically, to, to kind of summarize a little bit, so Chronicles gives us this, this view of Solomon, who is with David. He is working with David. David tells him the plans. David gives him specific instructions. David makes sure that Solomon is on the ground floor level of putting together the temple together. It's not just flung at him last second. We have multiple, multiple verses where David goes out of his way to say, Solomon, the son I chose, Solomon, the son that God chose, this is the one who's going to reign. And so um, Chronicles makes it very clear that from the, from the beginning, Solomon was the one that we wanted. Now, uh, as far as our second question about why would Samuel be the one, uh, you know, why, uh, sorry, why is Nathan, the prophet, so... Um, uh, why is he so invested in Solomon becoming the, the king? Um, we're going to wait and answer that next week because mm -hmm. we're running up on time. But that becomes very interesting in and of itself uh, because it, it reveals some more things about Nathan and Bathsheba's relationship that I think sometimes gets overlooked. Mm -hmm. So um, anyhow, that's I put my notes down, so I think I'm not going to, yeah. Be okay. tempted too much. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, uh, everybody, uh, join us next time. And in between those, uh, this show and the next one, hit us up on the, the website, RavenCreekSC.com or uh, RavenCreekSC on all the social media so you can be part of the conversation. Uh, tell us what we missed. Um, tell us what we, uh, I'm sure there's something. Um, tell us uh, your thoughts on what we had to say. Um, we love that. Uh, it, it really encourages us to keep going. Um, if you really liked what you heard, please, um, like everyone asks you to do, um, but it's a good reminder, uh, subscribe, write us a review, um, share us with a friend. Those kinds of things help us get the word out. And if you really, really liked what we had to say, uh, head over to our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash RavenCreekSC. Um, there is a theme with the naming. It's just so you don't have to tap uh, Social Club every single time. Um, but uh, that's where you can go and find uh, ways to give us a little bit of cash to. Uh, keep the lights going, keep the lights on, keep the, uh, the show going and upgrade equipment every now and again. Buy new books. Maybe a crate for Emily's dog. Um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so he can stop barking, uh, during production. 
But anyway, uh, that being said, uh, we love having you here. Uh, we love doing this, and we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next